Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. So in this hour, I'd like to put one more topic on the table, because I think this is probably one of the more important issues that we're struggling with as a nation. And that is the fate and future of the Republican Party. And in that context, the fate and future of both Donald Trump as a figure and a figurehead and Trumpism uh, or what you could call neo-fascism more broadly. There's a lot in the news. Also want to get into the possibility that COVID, getting COVID, could turn you into a right winger. Uh, Seriously? Who are the Proud Boy accelerants and why are they showing up? And America has a militia problem, uh, which is my uh, rant today over at uh, HartmanReport.com. I'll get to that in just a minute. I did want to uh, just point out a few headlines. You know, we can talk about any of these things if you'd like, but Number one, Russia says that, and they're publicizing, they're pushing this out to the news, that they are with, you know, pulling back their forces. The reports that I'm seeing on NBC News, anyway, are, appears that that's the case, but it's a small gesture. Who knows where this is going to go? But for the moment, the stock market's back, you know, up, because people are going, oh, maybe there's not going to be a war. The Sandy Hook families just settled with Remington. This is the first time in American history that somebody who is the victim of gun violence has been able to sue a gun manufacturer and there's been a settlement. This is an eight-year-long lawsuit. And uh, so could this be like the tobacco lawsuits in the late 90s? Could this be a turning point for the gun industry? Don't know. And we don't know what the terms of the settlement are yet either. There's supposed to be a press release. Let us know the details. And uh, also in good news, cage-free eggs show that activism works. I'll tell you all about that. And uh, it's time to call your member of Congress about direct contracting entities, DCEs. This is this new scheme to privatize Medicare that is just rolling full steam ahead. And I'll tell you about that. Josh Hawley is out there selling campaign merchandise, showing him giving the fist, right? Yes, tear down that capital. Uh, This is Trumpism. Donald Trump could, you know, drop dead of a, a McDonald's heart attack tomorrow morning and Trumpism would live on. You wouldn't have, you know, the tough guy, but you would have other people trying to imitate him and trying to take his place. You know, Ron DeSantis is probably the most prominent right now, but I would say that Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, I mean, there's no shortage of people who want to be Trump. You know, Christy Nome. The governor of South Dakota, you've, you've got, uh, I mean, there, there's a number of people out there who are jockeying for position to be the new Trump if Trump goes down. So how's this going to play out? On the one hand, we've got political commentators, uh, particularly in the mainstream media, basically saying, you know, it's all going down in flames. The, in fact, this is the piece from uh, U.S. News and World Report. Uh, it's titled Trump's Falling Star by Claire Hansen. Now, the key to this, I suppose, is that Claire writes, his favorability ratings are well underwater. Key voter groups that propelled him to the White House have soured on him. Twice as many people say they'd be less likely to vote for a congressional candidate endorsed by him compared to those who'd be more likely to vote for down-ticket contenders. In a hypothetical 2024 race rematch, he'd lose to any 2020 opponent. The Marquette Law School did a poll, uh, while some Democrats have been unhappy with President Joe Biden of late, quote, what those Democrats haven't done is decided that they voted for the wrong guy. 
which I think is a really important point. In January, a Marquette poll, in fact, found that Biden would beat Trump 53 to 43 in a hypothetical 2024 race. Now, why is Trump's favorability fading? Well, I would say, number one, January 6th. Number two, people are figuring out that the guy was just a hustler and a con man. Number three, he doesn't have the bully pulpit anymore. Whether, you know, including the Twitter and Facebook bully pulpit, but frankly, I, I think even those are relatively inconsequential now. When somebody can speak as president of the United States, it's like, you know, being the Pope. You, know, you, you get to, you are the final word. Not the case when you're running a golf club in Florida and trying to make money stealing, uh, selling stolen documents out of the White House. It's very strange. I mean, we've got Mike Pence now coming out saying that Donald Trump is wrong. You've got the January 6th riot, as I said. You've got Chris Christie coming out. This was two weekends ago on ABC's uh, This Week program. You've got Ron DeSantis openly fighting with Donald Trump. And in Florida, DeSantis has gone from no way to, yeah, maybe Floridians would vote for him instead of Trump in a, in a presidential primary. And then you've got Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell last week coming out and going, Trump is not the future of our party. Because he gets it. What, here's, what's, here's what's going on. Among Republicans, Trump is still very, very strong. He's got, you know, 70, 80 percent of the Republican base. But the Republicans only represent about a quarter of the country. In fact, it may even be below 20, 25% now. They've lost maybe a 4 or 5% over the last five years. And th where those people are going is they're not becoming Democrats. They're becoming independents. Trump had the independents in 2015, 2016. And he had them by using his Bernie Sanders rhetoric. You know, I'm going to tax the rich people so much it's going to give us a nosebleed. The, uh, my rich friends are going to hate me. I'm going to bring the jobs back from China. Uh, we're going to reverse, basically, Reaganism. He ran against Ronald Reagan, and he won the election. Arguably with a little help from his friends, but you get the point. But after watching him for four years do nothing but give another giant tax break to his billionaire buddies, you know, I think people are going, okay, we get it. We get who you are. White male voters without a college degree overwhelmingly supported Trump in 2020. Uh, Republicans are now taking that voter group uh, 70 to 28. But half of that group now see Trump, 46% uh, disapprove of Donald Trump. So I, I won't bore you with all the numbers, but uh, I mean, you, you've got like Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. She voted to impeach Trump. And she has six times the cash on hand of her opponent. Um, you know, so this, this article is saying, yeah, Trump is fading. Don't worry, he's going to go away. He's, he's doomed. He's on his way out. Then on the other hand, in Salon uh, yesterday, Heather Digby Parton published a piece titled, Trump Fatigue is Hype. The GOP is still firmly in Donald Trump's grip, and that may haunt them. I guess the question is, and, and, and she makes the point, and, and uh, Heather Digby Parton is a, a commentator whose opinions I have great respect for. Uh, she makes the point that all of this Trump is dropping, Trump is falling, Trump is dying politically and all this kind of stuff, that, you know, there's some of that happening around the edges and it's happening with independence, but within the Republican Party, he still has absolute control. And, you know, she, she points out that you've got Republicans who are terrified of him. And that, she says, is the definition of power. She said, and I'm, here's the quote, she said, these people who are questioning Trump's power are still terrified of his wrath. Now, there's these very same Republicans who are confidentially telling reporters for the New York Times and the Washington Post, eh, Trump is on his way out. They will not say this publicly because they are scared to death of him. And as she said, that seems to me that's the very definition of power. And then Frank Luntz says the, you know, the big problem is that the independents are, are turning away from Trump, and that's a problem for Trump. The question is, is that a problem for the GOP? I'm seeing a train wreck coming. I'll just lay this out for you. And, uh, you know, and, and, well, here's one more piece of it, and then I'll get to that. Uh, Donald Trump is now endorsing Republican candidates around the country. In Michigan, the, the big one, 
Uh, he's endorsing candidates who are saying that they would help him steal an election in 2024. I mean, basically, it just comes right down to that. Uh, there's a great piece by Peter Stone in The Guardian. You can read it at theguardian.org right now um, that lays out exactly who he's supporting and what they've said. But they're basically all these, they're kind of uh, Rudy Giuliani crazies. You know, the election was stolen and we've got proof. No, we don't. Well, yes, we do. No, we don't. Quack, quack, quack. So the train wreck that I see coming is that the Trump faction within the Republican Party and the, and the Republican voting base will prevail in the primaries you know, starting today or this week in Texas and soon all across the country over the next three, four months, the, the, Trump, the Trumpies are probably going to prevail in the primaries in many, many of these races. And they're going to end up on the ballot. And then in the general election, that's when the sane people come in and vote. And the same, and, and, and the Democrats, I mean, you know, the Democrats will be, well, they have their own primaries. And when the Democrats come in to vote in the general election in November, if we can get turnout really up there, and if we can overcome the voter suppression efforts, I think that the Trumpy Republicans are going to be easier to beat than the Mitch McConnell-style Republicans, the old guard Republicans. Because the Mitch McConnell kind of Republicans still have independence with them. The crazies don't, increasingly. And I see this as, frankly, good news for November. Now, I'm not counting my chickens. I've been there before, and I'm not going to do it again. And this election has a long way to go. But I'm not panicked. I'm concerned, but I'm not panicked. So what, what say you? What do you think? I'll pick up your calls on the other side of this break. After speaking of counting your chickens, I tell you about the eggs. And uh, welcome back. So uh, t t two quick stories for you, and then I'll pick up your phone calls. The first is pretty soon most eggs will be cage free. This is kind of cool. The animal welfare community. I mean, we humans typically uh, generally eat animals. I'm not a big fan of eating animals, but, you know, it's, it got us this far, you know, through three million years of evolution. And there are many of us who are just openly offended by the brutality associated with the uh, production of food from animals, including eggs in this case. There's a, a huge movement to have, you know, because these chickens, I mean, literally from the time they're hatched until the time they die, they live in one little, you know, one square foot cage. And it's just brutal. So the, for, the, for these hens that are laying eggs, now McDonald's has said they're going to shift to cage-free eggs. Restaurants all over the country are saying that they only want cage-free eggs. The result of this is that the second largest egg producer in the country, Roseacre Farms, uh, just came out and said, and I quote, what we producers failed to realize early on was that the people funding all the animal rights activist groups, they were our customers. And at the end of the day, we have to listen to our customers. And uh, so what's happening is uh, in, in a decade, in just 10 years, the percentage of hens in cage-free housing has gone from 4% in 2010 to 28% in 2020. And they expect it will double to 70% in the next four years. So I think I consider that good news. Anyhow, Stephen in Kula, Hawaii. Hey, Stephen, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Uh, you were talking about how you thought that cage-free eggs were a really good thing for for the animals. Actually, well, it's a in step. most cases, they're not. They're not as they're no better, and in many cases, worse. It's it's, it's called humane washing. It's to make people feel good, who want to do a good thing, mm -hmm. but they're really not. Instead so they just the, they the pack them in just as tight, but without the cage. Exactly. They're in actually big cages, huge warehouses with no windows. They have about the same amount of space. They're still de-beaked environmentally and, and health-wise for the chickens. It's worse because they can't control their excrement. And so there's more ammonia bothering their eyes. They still force molt them for the last couple of weeks of their life. Yeah. Where they take away their food so their hormones I, I get change. it, Stephen. I get it. You know, it's, it's a brutal, so, brutal industry. Need to stop being eggs. Yeah, there you go. Well, that's a good, that's a very good suggestion. Thank you for the call. Andrea in O'Fallon, Illinois. Hey, Andrea, what's on your mind today? 
Yeah, so I wanted to speak really quickly about the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to protest it. I really didn't watch it, honestly. I kind of wanted to watch the commercials, just wanted to do that. Mostly because as a black woman that's 34 years old, I have a white husband, and I appreciate what Eminem did. What I'm sad about is that no other black performers did. You had a perfect opportunity. Brian Flores has been stumping the media for the last two weeks. A black coach can't get a job. Colin Kaepernick can't get a job. There are no black owners in the NFL. You had all the opportunity in the world. You could have said something about voting rights. I called Joe Madison this morning. I love him. I'm never going to, you know, we just are indifferent. But he asked me, what have I done? Because I am a little, you know, a little upset, peed off about it. I donate. I give $100 to Gary Chambers. In, in, in Louisiana. Yeah. I'm giving money. I'm fighting the fight. That's there what you I'm go. doing. Yep. And don't forget Georgia. <laughs> There's a battle for their life. Uh, Andrea, thank you. And it's great to hear from you. I, I, I didn't want to, you know, as a white guy, I didn't think that it was appropriate for me to be criticizing the black performers for not taking a knee. It's interesting to hear your perspective. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Also, I wanted to flag another story for you. Governor Newsom, this is over on the Drudge Report, Governor Newsom's approval hobbled by crime fears and homelessness, uh, according to a new poll. This, you know, he, he survived a recall effort, you know, a month or so ago. But now, and, and this is something, you know, I've written three or four pieces about this over at HartmanReport.com. Democrats, get your act together with regard to crime and homelessness, or this is going to bite you in the ass come the elections. And sure enough, there it is. So, you know, point made. But to our militia problem, this, this I think is, is fascinating. And there's this uh, a professor at Georgetown University is offering some thoughts on this. We do have a militia problem in the United States. Militias, independent, non-governmental uh, citizen militias do not exist in any other developed country uh, in any significant way. Uh, there are people who go out and, and you know, uh, play soldier, but uh, not not like here in the United States and not with the branding and all, although it appears that this is starting to seep into Canada. And, you know, there's a lot of people have died as a result of these things, and a lot of, and there's been a lot of uh, violence associated with them. Uh, we Just in the last two weeks, an Illinois militia member pleaded guilty to bombing an abortion clinic. A second militia, Michigan militia member pleaded guilty to, it, to attempting to kidnap and murder Michigan's governor. A California militia group is on the verge of taking over an entire county. The governor of Idaho is, a, or the lieutenant governor, is talking about legalizing militias there. Which gets us to the interesting part of this, uh, that militias are actually illegal in every state in the Union. After the Civil War, every state in the Union decided, you know, there's a couple things that you just don't allow in public. And, you know, exposing yourself, like Lauren Boebert's husband went to jail for doing. 
um, brawling in public, disturbing the peace, pretending to be the police. These things are crimes, and they will put you in jail for them. Well, it turns out that plain soldier in ways that go beyond theater is also illegal in all 50 states. Now, when I say it goes beyond theater, what I'm talking about is like Civil War reenactments. That's fine. That's, you know, theater. That's good fun. Um, going out on a target uh, range and practicing with lime ammunition with the intent of creating a civil distur disturbance or overthrowing the government, that is actually illegal in all 50 states. 48 states prohibit any kind of militia activity at all in their constitutions. 50 states have laws against it. Uh, the law here in Oregon, for example, which is the, the crime of unlawful paramilitary activity is what this is called. Uh, first of all, our Constitution says the military shall be kept in strict subordination to the civil power. And then the law says a person commits the crime of unlawful paramilitary acti activity if that person exhibits, displays, or demonstrates to another person the use, application, or making of any firearm, explosive, or incendiary device, or any technique capable of causing injury or death, bloody, bloody, blah, for use in a civil disorder. Now, that's the key. This, the civil disorder is what makes it illegal. So if you're planning on going out and having street brawls, you have, and you're planning for that, you, you have broken the law. It turns out, though, that there's not a single state that is actually enforcing these laws, and, and none of them have in a long, long time. Uh, you know, of course, our most famous militia group was the Klan, and it took a federal law, the Federal Anti-Klan Act, to essentially get the Klan under control. So, and, and, and militias have just, you know, really expanded across the United States over the last five years since Donald Trump started using militia members for security at his, at his rallies and, and basically endorsing them, you know, in the presidential debates saying, you know, proud boys stand by and all this kind of stuff. And it really picked up. I mean, this whole thing became a thing in, after the, uh, President Obama was elected. You know, oh my God, a black man in the White House, time to, time to form the militia. And, uh, and when, when the Bundys backed down Obama twice, twice, you know, uh, uh, once down in, in uh, I believe it was Texas, maybe it was Arizona, in the desert there, uh, where Cliven's ranch was, and the other time up here in Oregon, in the, the Malheur uh, Wildlife Refuge. And that was uh, Cliven's son, Ammon. And that really jump-started them. You know, they, it got them tremendous publicity, and, and they went nationwide. So into the, and, and then now we've got Republicans who are actually campaigning on militia associations. Thomas Massey um, sending out a Christmas card and a Christmas tweet of himself, his wife, and their kids all holding assault weapons. Isn't that so Jesus, right? Um, and, uh, and now you've got Josh Hawley is selling merchandise to raise money for his reelection campaign with him giving a fist salute to the militia that helped uh, try to murder Vice President Pence and Speaker of the House Pelosi. So into this mess, this scrum, steps the uh, executive director for the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection. Uh, Mary McCord, she's a visiting professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center and a former acting assistant attorney general for national security, a principal deputy assistant attorney general for national security, uh, deputy, deputy chief of the, uh, or chief of the criminal division in the D.C. Circuit. She knows a thing or two about militias and she says that because the states are not enforcing these laws, we need a federal law. And she points out that you know, the, 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 the Second Amendment specifically talks about well-regulated militias, that is, militias that are authorized, because the, the, all the laws in all 50 states talk about unauthorized militia activity. Well, authorized militias are, we call them the National Guard now. Um, but that, you know, that's what the Second Amendment is referring to, not individual militias. And she said that uh, even the Constitution reserves, quote, the appointment of officers and training to the states. Uh, she also says that a, uh, her proposal is that a federal law, she said it, it could be passed under the Commerce Clause as well as the Militia Clauses and the Necessary and Proper Clause of the Constitution. She says it should bar people while armed and in conjunction with an unauthorized paramilitary organization from publicly patrolling, drilling, or engaging in paramilitary techniques. 
interfering with government proceedings. That would, by the way, include showing up at polling places. Asserting authority over others without legal right. Intimidating others in the exercise of their constitutional rights, back to voting, or training to do any of these acts. And she says this would not run afoul of Heller. It would not run afoul of the First Amendment's right to free speech. It would not run afoul of the First Amendment's right to peaceable assembly because all of these include that civil disturbance part, which is what makes it all illegal. I don't know if this is something that anybody has any interest in in Washington, D.C. I'm guessing probably not. They don't, you know, it's just like the state governments. I mean, she builds a strong case in her, art, in her article that in the states, you've got governments that are unwilling to enforce anti-militia laws because politicians are afraid. But that's not a good thing. <laughs> so what do we do with this? I think Congress needs to pass a law that reflects all the state laws, basically, and just says, you know, civil disturbances are not legal and planning for them isn't either. Okay, thank you, Sean. Sean says that uh, Bundy's ranch is in Nevada, by the way. So I also, you know, I wanted to point out some of the stuff around Donald Trump. I think that Trump is going down. I think this is the beginning of the end. I think it's all starting to be laid out. It's interesting to me that in New York, in New York State and down in Atlanta, the people who are probably going to be responsible for taking him down are black women. Wow, a salute to them. Eric Trump is now saying he's gonna go after Letitia James, the New York Attorney General. He says, uh, hours of, of video of you know, her making incriminating quack, quack, quack. And I, you know, we all know what he's gonna do. He's, you know, she, I, I remember when she did that interview a year or so ago with Rachel Maddow and uh, basically said, I'm gonna get Trump. And so the Trump organization and the Trump crime family are gonna characterize her efforts as part of a, uh, you know, a, a one woman vigilante squad or something like that. But uh, now that Mazars, his longtime CPA firm, which, you know, would produce the documents that he would give to banks and, and to tax authorities and everybody else to, to say, look at how rich I am. Probably not to tax authorities, but to banks. Mazars has come out and said, you know, the last 10 years worth of financial statements, got nothing to do with us anymore. And they said that they have a conflict of interest. Well, what does that mean? Well, a conflict of interest means, you know, clearly and explicitly, that they are now working not for Donald Trump or working with not Donald Trump or the Trump organization, but with the district attorney. And in New York City or the attorney general for New York State. So we'll see how this plays out. But I think probably the most important part of this is that Deutsche Bank is sitting on like a billion dollars worth of loans to Donald Trump. I mean, you know, uh, David K. Johnston has made the case on, among others, on numerous occasions that Trump is not really a billionaire. He's not even really a millionaire. He's probably actually broke. And he's been living on debt his whole life. And, and Trump himself has said, you know, I love debt. I'm the king of debt. He's called himself that. But what happens when, you know, your financial statements are all screwed up and you can't get any more debt? You can't borrow any more money. I mean, it's, it, it gets pretty skeezy. So the weekend of January 20th, 21st, 23rd, that, that was the March for Life in Washington, D.C., the anti-abortion march. And a, one of these militia groups showed up and kind of integrated themselves into the group. And, you know, was just doing all their kind of white power stuff and, uh, you know, wearing skull masks and, and patches and other, you know, Nazi memorabilia and paraphernalia and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just like there's open recruiting going on as well. I, I just think the whole thing is fascinating. With regard to Donald Trump, I'm starting to think, if, uh, you're, I'm looking at what Letitia James is doing. And... I'm asking the question, is this the beginning of the end of Donald Trump? We were talking last week about how the, uh, the, the whole Trump, uh, what would you call it, uh, craze? <laughs> I don't know. The, you know, how, how Republicans 
it's only a small percentage of Republicans, maybe 10, 20 percent of Republicans are saying, eh, Donald Trump, he's a little skeezy, he's a little nutty, I'm, I'm going to, you know, too much for me. But among independents, there's been a big move away from Trump. And without independents, Republicans won't win elections. And so you've got a lot of Republicans who are wringing their hands about this. Mitch McConnell at the front of that list. And now it looks, I mean, it looks seriously like Donald Trump is going to be indicted for possibly multiple crimes. I mean, they're, they're looking at bank fraud. They're looking at, you know, getting loans under false pretenses. They're looking at tax fraud. You know, telling, telling your bank that your, your home is worth $130 million and telling your tax authorities it's worth $5 million or whatever the numbers are, but they're in that kind of spectrum. The biggest threat, I mean, there's a big legal threat here, but I think the bigger threat to Trump is that the banks can now say, hey, you owe us a billion dollars, pay up. And if he had to do that, he's like instantly broke. And his Deutsche Bank loans are due next year, and Deutsche Bank has already said they're not going to roll them over. Now, on top of that, you've got uh, you know, legal experts coming out and saying, you know, the, the attorney general for New York, Letitia James, she, you know, she shut down the Trump charity, this phony charity that they had. Where, where, uh, and, and apparently this is still going on. You know, Melania is doing fundraisers right now with money going to charity. And now the state of Florida is looking into this because she's doing the fundraisers in Florida, and there is no charity registered in Florida under the name and doing what she said was happening. And so it's like, oh, God, another scam? And this one from Melania? Um, you know, following on her selling her own electronic art token to herself, apparently, at an auction. It's just getting weird. So I guess the larger question, not just do you think Trump is going down, but if he goes down, what happens? I mean, let's say that Donald Trump and, and his three kids are indicted by the New York Attorney General for bank fraud, uh, uh, RICO violations, you know, a criminal conspiracy, organized crime, money laundering. Let's say that they're indicted for that. What does the Republican Party do? How does the GOP deal with this? Do, will we see um, a massive and amazing uprising among Republicans across the country saying, no, you can't do this, as Trump asked people to do two weeks ago when he was in Texas? He said, I want to see the largest national demonstration ever if they indict me. I mean, he didn't say it in exactly those words, but that was the essence of what he said. Will that happen? Or will Republicans just shrug their shoulders and go, well, I guess he got nailed because they're all grifters. They're running this giant grift. And I, you know, frankly, I think they're going to abandon him. But I, you know, I suppose I could build a case that they will try to defend him, at least some of them, the ones that want his base, you know, the Josh Hawley's, the Ted Cruz's, uh, you know, but he's starting to lose Lindsey Graham. He's already lost Mitch McConnell. Marco Rubio is still, you know, the energizer bunny for Trump. We'll see. We'll see. On the other side of the break, I got a quick geeky science for you. Does COVID turn people into right-wingers? And then I'll pick up your phone calls. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 
Welcome back. So I, I'm not sure if this is geeky science or crazy alert, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, there's a fascinating Novacyte posting over on Daily Kos, a fascinating uh, diary. It's titled Neuroinflammation from COVID-19 May Cause Dissecutive Syndrome, uh, Formation of Authoritarian Traits. Now, what they're talking about, uh, there was this guy back in the late 1800s. His name was Phineas Gage, and he was working on the railroad. And somebody was driving a, a spike, you know, in, into a, to, to nail down a railroad track. And maybe it was him. I don't recall the story. But uh, somehow this spike ended up in his forehead. It went into his forehead and punctured the center of his brain. And they, the doctor pulled it out and he survived, which was, you know, kind of a miracle of modern medicine in the 1880s. Um, but Phineas Gage went from being like this really nice guy to being basically a jerk. Uh, you know, he, he basically lost control of his own inhibitions. And this was when they, this was like one of the major things that taught neuroscientists that the frontal lobes, the frontal part of the brain, is where our inhibitory uh, stuff goes on. In other words, um, you know, choosing not to to say something stupid or not to do something stupid or, you know, whatever. That, that happens in the front part of the brain. So, this was a, there was a fascinating study that they, on 38,000 patients hospitalized with COVID in the United States and Europe. And what they found was 11% of them that they thought had brain abnormalities that were tracked back to COVID. They did CT scans and MRI scans on those 11%. And they found that 10% of them actually had physical damage to their brain from having had COVID that they could identify. So now we're down to 1.2% of people. So keep in mind, we're talking a very small percentage of people. And this was also people who got COVID before the vaccine. So they got the full blam, knock you over. But what's most fascinating about this is that it appears that the damage was done in what's called the ventromedial prefrontal. And this part of the brain uh, this, uh, they're quoting this uh, academic paper published back in 2012, uh, looking at people who actually had lesions in that area compared to healthy controls. And what they found was patients with ventromedial prefrontal damage had deficits that taken as a whole were reminiscent of traits otherwise observed in a very different population, authoritarians. Robert Altmaier describes authoritarians as people who have the desire to submit to some authority aggression that is directed against whomever the authority says should be targeted, and a desire to have everybody follow the norms and social conventions that the authority says should be followed. Uh, they also note that uh, the overlap between that and uh, fundamental, religious fundamentalism is very, very high. And so the, uh, the hypothesis that this guy is putting forward, or this person is putting forward in this post over on Daily Kos, is that the COVID infections that get into that part of the brain maybe turning people into authoritarians, AKA Republicans. Now, they, they also say that the best hope to, to solve this is the practice of meditation and mindfulness, which actually, uh, mindfulness exercises have shown clinically to increase brain matter, specifically in the hippocampus, which is where our short-term memories are stored. Daily mindfulness techniques, they say, can effectively grow gray matter, so you can kind of restore your brain. So, <laughs> fascinating, fascinating story and some very strange speculation. So picking up your phone calls, Michael in Bangor, Maine, uh, you wanna challenge me, Michael, on what, the Durham investigation, seriously? Yeah, 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 just just uh, let it sink in for a second. I'm a good-natured conservative with a spike in my head anyway, but look at it this way. There are plenty of us on the conservative edge of, of politics that want to see anyone, anyone who creates uh, a criminal act or by, violates a law, be prosecuted. That's Trump. That's Hillary. That's anybody. I think we can agree to that, right? Sure. Sure. So why is it, and I don't understand this, why is it there is this almost universal mainstream press runaway from this Durham story? It's, there's more to it than what you were saying yesterday, and I think that the people who I consider progressives and people on the left are... There is no Durham story, Michael. He, 
he, yeah, what he pointed point. out in that federal court uh, ruling, and I actually read it yesterday. In fact, I read part of it on the air. What he pointed out in the federal court ruling was that the lawyer who was working for Hillary Clinton had been an intermediary or a, a lawyer, I forget which, for a, uh, a computer consultant that, that the Clinton campaign had said, hey, look into this story about the Trump uh, campaign coordinating with Russia and the, and the pings that were reported coming from that Russian bank. It didn't you know, there was there's nothing in his in his filing that says that those people actually spied on Trump, that that computer consultant that they hired actually got inside Trump or even tried to get inside Trump's stuff. I mean, it says it's literally not there. Donald Trump made well, that up. And then he and then he said, and therefore Hillary Clinton should get the death penalty. I mean, that well, I that, mean, that's, that's why I, the mainstream media there. isn't going there is because it's just beyond bizarre beyond description. Well, let me point out just a couple things if I can, and I won't. I won't dwell on this. I, I, I disagree with you that the press um, shouldn't be looking into this. What was said by Durham was preliminary at best, but he was he was referring to other information that's going to be coming down. I'll remind you that as early as 2016, and this is all declassified now. Uh, Brennan, Brennan's memos, his notes, talking about the the uh, the plan to create the Russian probe uh, against uh, against Trump. Uh, there is evidence. Uh, John Ratcliffe, I know you don't accept anything he would say, but he was talking yesterday about the fact that uh, Obama and Biden and other people in the administration in 2016. We're all told about Brennan's notes. Uh, I am, Michael, can you pause for just a second? And let me just ask you a sure. question here. Um, sure. If a candidate for office was working with a hostile foreign power to get elected, wouldn't you want to know? Sure, but I wouldn't break the law to get it out. Well, how is the law broken? Well, I think it's coming, Tom. I, what I'm saying to you is that there's clear implication. Look, I'm an attorney, and I read the, 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 the entire memo. There's only one part of it. It's about a paragraph. It's in the background portion of the memo. Right. It's, it's preliminary at best, like I said. But he's implying that he has additional evidence, and Ratcliffe verified well, let me ask you another question then. Do you think that in a political campaign, it is a legitimate thing for a campaign to hire somebody to see if the other campaign's websites can be penetrated? No, I think that that should be illegal. That's wire fraud. Is it? I, you know, I don't know the law. I, I, frankly, I don't know if it's illegal to... Well, to, you're not I'm, allowed. I'm, I can't break into your computer if I did that. And I, are you sure? It. Yes. If, I I, if I've got a vulnerability, if, if, if uh, yeah. Okay. Well, do you think that the FBI should be able to if they think that a crime is being committed? Absolutely, because they have statutory authority. Right. And you don't, or and, I don't. And, and so weren't these guys in DOJ working, using statutory authority to look into Trump and his possible collaboration with a foreign power? Well, now you're bringing up what I really want to talk about. It's either... It was just the campaign for Hillary trying to do something nefarious, or there was a plan for the FBI to join in and create the whole thing against Trump. There, it could well, be. Well, is it creating the whole thing things. against Trump, or is it revealing the you know a crime of collusion with a foreign power to usurp a, a, a U.S. election? Uh, if the FBI was doing that and they found it, that's fine. But Hillary shouldn't have been in there. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess we're, we're both going to see how this shakes out, Michael. What an amazing time we live in. Helping you win the water cooler wars. Tom Harbin here with you. I got an email this morning from Susan Rogers. She is the president of uh, Physicians for National Health Plan. PNHP.org is the website. And if you haven't gone over there and you haven't signed up to get on their email list, I strongly encourage you to do so. Susan has been a guest on this program, as have other people from PNHP. It's a great organization. It's made up of doctors. It's like 10 or 15,000 doctors who, who want a single-payer health care system. And she says, and I'll just, I'll just share this with you straight up. She says, thanks to activists like you, 
Medicare Direct Contracting, this is DCEs, right? Direct Contracting Entities. Medicare Direct Contracting has gone from an obscure program that would have privatized traditional Medicare on the sly to a high-profile example of Wall Street's thirst for public Medicare dollars. To nobody's surprise, industry-friendly groups are becoming increasingly vocal in an attempt to save their once-obscure cash cow. That's why we need everybody who is concerned about the future of Medicare to call their member of Congress today. Now, the phone number for Congress is 202-224-3121. And, and then she provides a script. You know, hello, my name is, and I am a constituent of, and I am calling because I want my, I want you to, or I want the, the senator or the member of Congress to stand up for seniors and demand an end to Medicare direct contracting uh, now. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Basera has the power to end this program today. Will you work with your colleagues to demand that he do so and to protect the future of Medicare? And then they've got another script for, this is, that's what you ask the person who answer, answers the phone. They have another script for uh, if you get voicemail. Just say, uh, you know, I want Representative so-and-so to stand up for seniors and demand an end to Medicare direct contracting. Under this program, more than 30 million seniors who, cho who choose traditional Medicare would be automatically enrolled in for-profit direct contracting entities without their full knowledge or consent. Direct contacting entities have a strong incentive to limit seniors' care in order to maximize their profits and would completely transform traditional Medicare within the next few years with no oversight from Congress. I'm telling you, this, this is the, uh, this attempt to privatize Medicare uh, through the DCEs on top of Medicare advantages attempts is just nuts. It's just nuts. So, picking up your phone calls here, Bob in Baltimore, Maryland. Hey, Bob, what's up? Hey, Tom. I recently got COVID, and um, it was only for a week, and this was last month, mm -hmm. and uh, I recovered very quickly, and uh, I've been vaccinated, vaccinated and boosted. Yeah, yeah there you yeah, go. J&J and Moderna. And I was a bit scared, but I heard you say that those who get COVID can experience heart disease, you know, going forward. I was looking at, at a reference that Amy Goodman pointed me to. Um, this was a nature medicine. The article really just talks about COVID-19. It doesn't even use the word Omicron. The article itself states at the very end that the study is limited by not uh, going through all the dynamics of um, the variants and subvariants. So, um, I, <laughs> so the, the, the hope is that Omicron is less severe or less likely to cause heart damage. Is that the bottom line for you, Bob? I mean, I, I would, I, again, I can't offer medical advice, but if I got COVID right. after I've recovered, the first thing I would yeah. do is make an appointment with my doc and get an EKG and make sure everything's okay. Yeah, it, it talks about how um, those who are not vaccinated, well, the, the, well, the, the, uh, the risk of um, uh, myocarditis and pericarditis is is um, significant. Yeah. And um, but those who are, and it's evident in those who are, who are regardless of uh, vaccination status, which means it's less less significant. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so it's. Odds are you're you're gonna you're gonna be fine, Bob. <laughs> Okay. And let's hope that right, that's well, the case. I'm... But you should check okay. it out. I mean, you know, next time you see your doc, uh, have it checked out. Bob, thanks a lot for the call. I, I think the bigger issue here, outside of our own, you know, concern about these things, is what's this going to do to our workforce if we have, you know, mil a million people who are filing disability claims? It's the place where smart people get their news. Back with your calls right after this. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Sherry in Shelton, Washington. Hey, Sherry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I was wondering if there's going to be any more follow-ups from you on the post office issue. And my heart sank when I heard about the contract um, that DeJoy has. Yeah. You know, agreed to. And, and I mean, we've been asking our local congressmen for years about the post office. Mm -hmm. I just am afraid that they're complicit. Yeah. Like, 
We, we, you can't not know that they've been funding. Why didn't they do something about that before? Now this comes out and, you know, I don't care if the administration is, you know, suing to make it not happen, but, you know, the likelihood is that it probably will go through. And who in Congress already knew? I mean, I'm just very, very disheartened by this. Yeah, me, and I'm me too. If you... uh, and, and seriously pissed off about it too. And, yeah. And, and, and yeah. I, I am hopeful that uh, you know people will be calling their members of Congress and and say we've you know we've we've got to uh, do whatever is necessary. And Congress can, uh, I believe, can overrule DeJoy. Um, uh, you know, they'd have to pass a law that regulates the postal service, but they have the ability to do that. I, I believe to say, uh, no, we are going to go with these uh, alternative fuel vehicles. It's, it's high time to do it. Sherry, thank you for the call. Richard in Naples, Florida. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind? Well, it's just I, it's fascinating to me, this whole program uh, that I've been listening to from whatever, how long I've been listening to it, it. It's fascinating to me that it fits right in with what my life is about today. I'm at the Dome of the Glades in uh, Naples, Florida. Uh, we're perhaps uh, the first parcel of real estate that will be integrated into non-fungible tokens. Uh, so that's where I am. But I've been listening to your program, and I started listening to this part of it, and I said, I've got to focus on this when I talk to you. Yeah. And that is, at the beginning of the program, you said, uh, that what we should be seeking, perhaps, is to have a federal law that would control militias. Right. And I think that that is an excellent idea for many, many reasons, but perhaps one of the most important is that it will focus our nation. People will say, what? The federal government control that? Really? And yeah, you know, we've got to figure that out. Every state has a law like this on the books. Every single state, all 50 states. Uh, a lot of this comes out of, you know, anti-Klan activity. States but, wanting but they to just, don't, they don't but they, enforce but them. Exactly. They don't enforce them. And so, and, and, and this is what this law professor said was, you know, hey, it, it looks like they're not enforcing them because they're frightened. And uh, that's when you have the Fed step, step in as, you know, as we did in the 60s with, with uh, integration and civil rights. So, you know, pretty straightforward process. Richard, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. Stan in Portland. Hey, Stan, what's up? Good morning. How are you, Tom? Good. I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of Russia's use of the false flag system. Okay, I'll give you 58 seconds. <laughs> Go 19, for it. In 1939, Russia under Stalin decided that he needed some of Finland's territories. Finland bordered to the northwest. Well, I wasn't Russia. That was the Soviet Union, number one. And, and, you know, we've used a lot of false flags, too. I just want to toss that out. I mean, you know, but anyhow, continue, Richard, or Stan. Excuse me. I'm sorry. All right. So Russia obtained some Finnish uniforms or made them mm. and put an entire army on the border with little Finland, demanding that Finland give up some of its territory because Russia needed that territory to defend itself right. against someone. Well, on November 3rd, Finland kept refusing to cede its territory to Russia. So on November 30, 1939, Russia had these Russian troops that were dressed in Finnish uniforms attacking, and they had motion picture cameras to Yeah, it's like the, 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 little, the little green men in Crimea. No, I get it. And, right. and I, you know, I would just say, remember the main, you know, when... <laughs> when uh, McKinley was, uh, you know, ginning up the, the Spanish-American War by saying that the, that the Cubans had bombed the, the USS Maine when, in fact, the boiler had blown up. Anyhow, Stan, I got to run. Thanks for the call. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from chapter one. I sit in a living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. 
David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leave the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look. That suggests I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor or governor or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. 
You're Rick in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Rick, we got about 45 seconds. What's up? Uh, I think I can do it. I have had checks out of my mailbox, and people have gone to a bank and cashed the check or pleaded with the cashier. Well, I promised Mr. Hopkins that I would pay uh, this bill. And through that process, they were able to get loans out and credit cards in their name and my name. And when I went to call the credit card company or the bank that the loan was made on, they act like I was just making it up. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Identity theft is a big problem. Rick, thank you for the call. My apologies to everybody else who's on hold here, but we'll pick you up tomorrow. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. No, seriously, it's not. It really, I mean, that's the whole point of it, is it requires all of us. There's some great organizations out there. By the way, check out Stacey Abrams. Today may be the last day you can make a donation. Seriously, because the Republicans are trying to make it illegal to make donations to her. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.